Welcome back to MERScast. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Mike Connolly. Hello. And today we have the pleasure of having GX Jupiter Larson with us. Good day. Hello, GX. Uh, I guess I already said hello to you because before this we sat and listened to your pick, which is live in Khabarovsk, CCCP, I'm Proud by Rank of the Workers. Uh, one of my personal favorites. Yeah, this this was the, uh, when I asked you to be on the podcast, this this is like an immediate uh, answer from you. Yeah, actually, um, I like it because Miss Sammy hadn't found his sound yet. He was still experimenting. And you can hear like what, in the in on the record, you can hear what will become Mersbau because it builds to this wall of sound um, that's now, you know, practically a cliche, but um, he hadn't quite got there yet. He was still searching. He was still experimenting. And um, I just think it's, uh, it's the most interesting phase of his development. It is such a cool album. And I mean, it opens with that just like total, just cavernous live sound. And you hear a piano. So immediately with you hear a piano and you're like, where are we? It reminded me of some sort of a hellscape version of Rites of Spring when it came in. Like it had this sort of weird tape sound to the piano and uh, it it was, you're in the cavern, certainly, uh, which we refer to a lot here, but it's it's there. It sounds very roomy, very empty, very airy. Uh, it at times, the, well, first off, this is, this record is obviously it's a live recording of two shows in Khabarovsk, Soviet Russia, uh, about three and a half years before Soviet Russia was dissolved. And uh, it is uh, two days, uh, one of which, according to the uh, MERS book from the MERS box, it's uh, MERS box was too loud the first day. So the second day they uh, they played a more mellow show with uh, some collaborators. But we'll get to that. What I think is uh, also interesting, um, especially if you've listened to a lot of his so-called collaborations, uh, in this particular case, he's actually listening to his collaborators instead of trying to dominate the stage. He's being a participant. He's actually uh, at treating his collaborators as equals. It's cohesive. He's playing along with. Yeah. He's playing nicely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it's nice to hear. So this was a, I believe this was like a jazz festival in the Soviet Union in in 1988. This is two days in March of 88. This must have been such alien music, even for a quote unquote jazz festival. You know, this was just they must have just been shocked, in shock and awe when when he played the first night. The recording of the first night actually reminds me of. Uh, it's funny, both of these pieces take me to Germany when I listen to them. The first one makes me think of uh, Einstein and Neubauten's Halber Mensch, uh, the the album, but also the video recording where they're in a junkyard and there are. It starts off and it's very slow pans and there's sort of this ominous drone and then they're just kind of like picking up and plinking on their junk and the instruments they'll then use and this has that feel where it's sort of this collage of trying out, like you said, it's experimental. He's trying out different things. There's a lot of different sounds going on. Uh, Kyoji Mizutani was in the project at that time. So there's two people doing stuff. So you get a kind of even more varied sound than you might just one person at the helm. It's funny when I first heard the record and that was shortly after it came out, uh, 
my first thought was, wow, this sounds so Soviet. It just reminded me so much of what I would expect a Soviet jazz festival to sound like, uh, which is like heavy on the uh, Frank Zappa. Yeah, right. Um, but it was great because you can hear uh, Masami, you can hear his influence, You can hear, especially on the second day. Yeah. You can hear, oh, this is what this guy is into. Let's try to catch up and compete and uh i don't know anyway it's a very playful uh, i think a, a a real fun album well especially on the second track the second day you know they're trying a little harder and and you're he- and kind of what you're saying you're hearing his influences because it does start very free jazz feel but then there is a section a big middle chunk of that of the second side is does have a very kraut yeah, i have kraut rock written in my yep. notes and i also it starts out a little bit motoric too with a, a different sample. It's sort of like this bass hit that's going. And I wrote free jazz ticking clock because that was the first thing that, that hit my mind is like, it was very loose. The only real critique I would have of the second side, and I understand the drums going through it, but that drummer never, never lets up. I would, I would have liked a little bit of space in it without drums to kind of hear the other stuff going on. You get it a bit at the end, you get it a bit around seven minutes or sort of a break and you get to hear some of the other sounds, but is Masami playing drums? No, uh, is, it, is it someone else? No, percussion is Vitali okay. Lukyanov on the second piece. Okay, How, because it also lists Masami as tapes, uh, metals, Russian radio, and drums. So maybe he is playing drums. There are parts where ooh, I don't I, think he's the the drumming that you're mentioning. I don't think it's Masami. Okay, I think okay. it's the the Russian gentleman. Because and 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 there are points in especially the second side where I I I was. I was like, how many drums are there? Because so, so maybe he was, maybe he was adding yeah, some yeah. stuff to the, the, I think everyone involved was flying blindly. Well, that's kind of what it feels like. And, it, and I, I just kept, I couldn't picture what was going on at I any point. I would love to have seen some <laughs> yeah. photographic evidence. Yes. Because uh, it, really. I know on the original album cover, there was no photographic evidence of yeah. the actual performances. It's another visual collage that Masami did. So uh, if it wasn't for the title, you might not have even known where or what it was right. as far as the packaging, the original packaging. The B-side is one of the most musical pieces we hear from him kind of ever because of the drums, so, but also because yeah. he's playing along so nicely. Yeah, and the only thing that might be even um, more musical or, or at least as musical are some of his early tape releases. Oh. <laughs> Entropy in action. One second. <laughs> well, before I was so rudely interrupted, um, some of the more interesting, well, okay, some of the other releases that he's done, which I think are could be argued to be as musical, some of his early tape, which uh, releases that were based on tape loops. Right, which are can be uh, especially when he's sampling or uh, from um, um, well more musical sources uh, are pretty entertaining. But there's also still a lot of you know, you know, especially from this time. This is '88. This would have been the same time as Storage, right? Storage was '88, and there is a lot of that metal just metal tension and metal work that you kind of do associate with this era of, of Merzbo. So there, you know, there certainly is still a lot of very abstract stuff in there, especially on the first side. The second side gets way more 
Yeah, but know. there's you talk about the musicality of his tape loops and and from the early stuff. There's some very, I mean, I have to imagine on the B side those sort of like vocals and the choir and some of the more uh, not organic, but uh, I guess musical sound on that is from him playing tapes. Like there's yeah. there's obviously parts where you hear the tape speeding up and the pitch mm-hmm. rising. Yeah. And yeah, he's playing these. Like, all of a sudden, there'd be like a weird, like Russian march coming in, or something, or some yeah. just voice coming from above. I swear that was Astro Boy Rain. from Astro Boy. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I wrote TV theme down here, and it's kind of funny because shortly after that, it, it goes into this thing where it almost feels like a like an exploitation movie soundtrack or something, like a you know little ag- chase scene or something. Like you get a you get a real vibe of that. But yeah, and, and even the way he's playing. The samples are, it's so strange because all of a sudden there'll be like a voice or all of a sudden there'll be this other sound and then it appears and disappears and just gets like swallowed up by the, by the mess that it's being made. I wonder how many people were there because I, the thing is I picture because I totally am picturing the Soviet Union the entire time I'm listening to this. I'm picturing some like giant Soviet hall with, you know, giant ceilings and just kind of cold and. And, you know, and bear, you know what I mean? But I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, I can't really picture it. I always pictured it happening in a small side room. Okay. There you with go. like two people in the audience. <laughs> well, I wonder how many people were there. Yeah. The second piece, live at Soviet Army Officers House Hall. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> uh, has sort of, it sort of obviously ends. That's the end of that. Yeah. That piece to me. Mm-hmm. But the live at Trade Union's Palace of Culture Hall, the first side of uh, it it fades out. It doesn't feel like that's the end of that performance there. I can't imagine that he could only perform for 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> it's, it's almost a half hour. Yeah, Both of yeah, these, yeah, yeah. But still, yeah. 30 it seems short for a live yeah, performance. Absolutely, yeah. Miss Sammy and I used to do a lot of trading back and forth uh, throughout the 80s, really into the uh, early 90s. And um, we didn't keep track of who sent what to who. We... Just whenever we had something new, we'd send it to the other. And um, it was uh, part of two records that uh, he released on his label. I I don't remember what the other album was, but uh, I do remember this one stuck in my mind because it was, it just sounded so Soviet to me because of this weird jazz quality because Soviet jazz was always, you know, a little off center. At this time, I think it would it would have been either storage or anti monument, right? The those are the first kind of LPs. Anti monument, anti monument. Yes. All right, cool. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. You started the haters in seventy nine. Seventy nine. So forty years. Oh my god! That's <laughs> so incredible. But it you feels know, like yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Back in nineteen seventy nine, how did how did you guys find each other? We found each other in eighty two. Okay. And through MB. Um, okay, so this uh, individual in Texas, who unfortunately I don't remember his name offhand, he was in touch with both me and MB. Remember back, this is back in the early 80s, everyone's doing mail art, so everyone's connected through that network. And so the guy in Texas told MB about me, and, and then MB contacted me, and we, had, we started a bit of correspondence back and forth. And then MB told Miss Sammy about me, and then Miss Sammy contacted me saying, oh, I heard about you from MB. And then uh, the three of us were very uh, close via correspondence for a while. Uh, I actually went to Italy to visit MB in 
uh, November of 82. And um, Miss Sammy and I, though, we corresponded at least a couple times a month uh, for about a good 10, 12 years. Uh, the, when you went to Italy to visit MB, is that from the story on the back of the split LP? Yes. And that, tribute, and that's yeah. all, and that's all like, I mean, that's all that whole story is. Oh yeah. No, that's. You guys really did wet and go, wet and count garbage cans. For yeah, a, pretty much. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. He, he took me around Merlin. He wanted me to, uh, yeah. to show me the town and, uh, you know, we talked a lot and we went to cafes and rode the tram and yeah, you know, I mean, we did other things than just counting garbage cans. I, nope. No, you didn't. Not, <laughs> not in my mind. Um, that was actually one of the absolute first noise albums I ever got is that. That and split. Yes. And at the time it was, it came out in 97. I would have gotten in 98. I, I had no idea. I didn't know who you were talking about because I didn't know, you know, Mersbau was, you know, one of the first people I came to haters as well. So the MB for a while, I thought you were talking about Mersbau oh, because yeah. I didn't know how to, you know, I don't know. Even then you, you couldn't looking up MB yeah. from, you know, this is like my baby years of getting in, you know, right. obviously I realized quickly soon thereafter I understood who I, you know, found out about MB and realized, but at first I was like, I'd always pictured you and Masami counting the garbage cans. <laughs> well, we hung out. Uh, a few times, but we never ended up counting garbage cans. Maybe porn shops, but not garbage <laughs> cans. For the record, the the record that Mike is referring to is the Mertzbau Haters Tribute to MB, and that's on Old Europa? Old yes. Europa, yes. Yeah. One um, of the coolest looking. Who uh, uh, put out the original LP, and so they did the uh, re-release of the CD, uh, CD re-release. In 1979, I guess just what... I had no I common exactly. sense. I, yeah, yeah, I was I a guess... twenty-year-old with no common sense. And where were you living at the time? Uh, uh, just outside of Coney Island. Oh, see, I guess I didn't even realize you were ever out there. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was. Uh, I New York was my first attempt to have a life, and um, I was twenty. And uh, you know, tried to live in New York. I wasn't that good at surviving yet. Mm -hmm. So I left and went back to the Pacific Northwest. But um, while I was there, uh, it's when I conceived of the haters and did the first haters performance. Which was? Uh, smashing video cassettes by hitting them with a video camera. <laughs> so it was as much a screening <laughs> as it was a performance. I hadn't decided if I was going to be a performance artist or a filmmaker. So I figured this way I could use the event either way, depending which way my career well, went. Looks like you didn't really make a choice. No, I didn't. I'm <laughs> yeah. still waiting to make my choice. And was that at an actual venue or was that? It was at a friend's studio in the uh, east side, lower east side. So where did, I guess, what music did you come from? Oh, it would be punk. Okay, I so mean, it was punk. I mean, oh, you absolutely. did come from punk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, uh, I, uh, it was the first music I really got into. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, when I was a wee young lad, uh, I just listened to talk radio. I had no interest in music whatsoever. To me, talk radio was where it was at, you know, and uh, especially AM talk radio. In the mid '70s, uh, '76, '77, uh, when punk kind of exploded, uh, yeah, that really spoke to me. It really did. I think the Pistols, uh, Stiff Little Fingers, um, you know, uh, really. I mean, it it spoke to me. It just did. Where? How do you get from? 
Stiff Little Fingers and Sex Pistols to smashing uh, videotapes with a video recorder for your idea for your first performance. I mean, that's pretty, that's a huge leap in my mind, but maybe it wasn't at the time. Well, you know, so by 79, uh, Punk's like three, four years old. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking about this for, you know, three or four years. Um, So at the time, everyone spoke about Punk as if it was noise. Uh, in the, in the late seventies, everyone referred to punk as noise, at least on a casual setting. And I just felt, you know, and everyone, everyone said, let's get up on stage and let's just make noise. And of course they'd get out their guitars, get out their drums and do music. And so to me, I, I was a purist, I guess I wanted something just a little bit more extreme, just a little, something a little bit noisier. And, uh, again, with that attitude combined with a lack of common sense, well, that's why you end up hitting video cassettes with a video camera. I'm so glad that you did. (laughs) So you said that you met through mail. Yeah. Via MB and you, you used to do a lot of mail art, MB did a lot of mail art and. So did Sammy. Yeah, we all did. John Weiss sent me a link recently to uh, a copy of Mechanization Takes Command that has labels that say Jupiter Larson had absolutely nothing to do with this on it, which is a tape that Masami released on Zuzufu product, uh-huh. but it has this stamp on it. And yeah. so what's the story behind uh, Okay, behind well, the, the stamp, that particular stamp, uh, when did I do that? Maybe 83, 84, some, somewhere in there. Um, so let's see uh, how to set up the proper context. In mail art, at the time, there were lots of projects, a lot of collaborations that involved adopting other people's logos or signatures or profiles or what have you. And so there'd be this natural kind of ongoing collaboration of combinations and recombinations of different people's symbols and logos and portraits and what have and names and what have you. So in a way, and, and, uh, there was one male artist in particular, his name was Calvellini, an Italian, actually a very rich um, corporate businessman who owned a chain of, uh, supermarkets, I believe it was. And he was a male artist. And, um, when he was, a an art, a rich art collector, he had other artists do his portrait. And then after a while, when he discovered mail art, he kind of got involved in mail art and he had this sticker and it said Calvellini and it had his birth date and future death date. And he passed them out to people and people would incorporate this sticker in their own work. So it's kind of like semi-official, semi-tributes to the man Calvellini. So, of course, being a youngster in his early 20s and having no common sense, I decided I would become the anti-Calvellini Calvellini <laughs> and made a sticker. I mean, uh, uh, well, actually, originally a sticker, then a, a stamp, an actual rubber stamp. I made 50 copies of this rubber stamp and sent it to my 50 favorite mail artists, who <laughs> wow. then proceeded to stamp everything they did with the comment that I had nothing to do <laughs> With their project. <laughs> That's so cool. And this wound up on uh, Mertzbau tape. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah <laughs> probably, among other probably, things. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Have you, you seen these stamps around? Uh, 
You know, um, not super recently, but in the last few years, uh, male artists who I lost touch with, but uh, recently because of social media, got back in touch with, have shown me uh, archival footage, if you know, photos and pics of what they did with the stamp. That's so cool. Do you still have it? No. No, I don't have it. Did because, you even keep one? No, I didn't. <laughs> because I had something to do with it. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't meant for me. It was meant for everyone else but me. Were there other, what other people did you correspond with? with mail? Are there other people you corresponded with via mail art that you've since collaborated with that maybe we would know or, you know, besides Masami or MB? Probably not. Um, there's Victor Baroni, who was very active in, uh, throughout the 80s. He was based out of Rome, I believe, uh, at least Italy. And um, he had a label tr called Tracks, and they used to do a lot of cassette compilations. They started then getting into vinyl uh, compilations. One of the first labels to release uh, MB and an early label to release Merspo, and a lot of male artists uh, just goofing off with uh, pretending to play instruments or what have you. Um, H.R. Fricker, who's an amazing conceptual artist uh, out of Switzerland. Um, I'm still in touch with him. He yeah, is one really uh, unsung superhero of uh, conceptual art. And it's hard to explain what he does, but he's a master of... Uh, imagery and uh, conceptualization of uh, inconsequential uh, byproducts of whatever. Uh, um, yeah, it, it, he did a self-portrait. Uh, he took a picture of himself looking into a mirror. And uh, if you look closely, you could kind of make out a silhouette of a face in his uh, pupil of his eyeball. So he enlarged that image of his pupil and eyeball, and that became his self-portrait. That kind of became his main image that he would recycle in different ways. Um, he he his fame uh, had a famous quote. He said, "After Dada, after fluxus comes tourism." He was really big on traveling. <laughs> um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, there, there used to be this guy, Lon Spiegelman who I mention here because he was based in L.A. And during the 70s and 80s, he was a key figure of the L.A. mail art scene, and he really kind of kept it together. He did these great caricatures, these great drawings that looked like people turned inside out. Um, cool. Very cool. I think the Getty actually has the—he's since passed away, and I think the Getty actually has like a lot of archival— um, work and papers from his estate. Um, but he, he was a really interesting, interesting fella. Buster Cleveland, uh, another California male artist, he was really into palm trees. He, everything he did and had circled around <laughs> palm trees. But he was a fun guy. He was a fun guy to hang out with. And uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of these characters and the very, very early noise people kind of shared the same platform. Well, it seems like for you, mail art and, and noise and performance went hand in hand. Like they were just, they were all oh, equally as important. Yeah, absolutely. Time. Sure. And uh, remains so. Um, and I think for a lot of us, that was true. Uh, noise wasn't defined, noise culture wasn't defined as such yet. Um, it was just, um, you know, at the time, uh, what MB, Masami and I were doing, we kind of got lumped in with industrial music. 
And then later it kind of became industrial noise and noise spelt with a Z. Then, you know, it's kind of gone through metamorphosis over the past 40 years. But, you know, what we now would perceive as noise culture or the noise scene, uh, it wasn't defined as such, not until really kind of mid to late 90s when it really kind of became its own animal. When did you see it kind of start, especially in the in the U.S.? What other people were you playing with at the time, I guess? Oh, well, you know, I'd have in to say uh, late 80s. Uh, I'd say 86 was a turning point. Uh, up until then, I kind of faked my way onto uh, the bill on almost every venue and stage I got on. I mean, the haters were disguised as a punk band. And a lot of people still think we used to be a punk band. Um, that never was the case, but we would disguise ourselves as such because it was the only way to, to get a gig. You know, there was no noise venue. There was, there was no such thing. Um, occasionally, if you approached a gallery and you explained that it was a, uh, a type of performance art, then sometimes you could fake your way on the bill. But otherwise, you had to say, oh, yeah, of course we're a punk band, you know. I mean, I opened up for DOA once. Oh, know? really? Oh, yeah, in no. Vancouver? No, Salt Lake City. <laughs> um, but Joey and I used to be neighbors when I did live in Vancouver. 86, what kind of, did you see change? Okay, well, that? what happened in 86 was that um, that's kind of when people started using the term industrial noise uh, more frequently than they had before. And there were starting to be more projects around that were what we now would consider noise and not so much industrial music, but people really pushing the boundaries, uh, not necessarily because of volume or distortion, but because of people really trying to find their own sound and, and caring less about the musicality of what they were doing and more interested in the sound, you know, uh, what kind of vocabulary that they could develop selecting a limited number of sound sources and, and how far they could push that. So that became a whole new dialogue, whereas before, you know, yeah, people were just making, you know, trying to be more industrial than the next guy. And, um, and that only couldn't take you so far, of course, but, uh, in 86, I started noticing like uh, projects like We Never Sleep, you know, this label dash band dash you know, distributor out of Denver, Colorado. Um, and that's who, that was kind of your, those were kind of your people when yeah, you were yeah. living in Denver. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they, you know, they were interested in industrial music, but they also appreciated some of the more extreme versions of that and that they found more attractive. That spoke to them more than the traditional industrial music that we all come to, you know, expect now uh, when that label is used. And um, the, the audience just build uh, in, in part, it, it, you know, it started with mail art because mail artists started to do compilation tapes. And, and sometimes this would just, they just make enough copies. So everyone that appeared on the tape would get a copy, but that still kind of spread the word. And the, 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 the other uh, layer to that was that there usually would be one person on the compilation who also had a radio show, on, usually on a college station or some kind of community station. And there was a, a network of radio people who, would, who are interested in this kind of sound, who are communicating with each other. And 
And that kind of uh, started the separation of noise and mail art to noise and something else, noise and radio and radio art. And, and that created a whole separate network of people trading tapes. And so you ended up with this thing, this cassette culture that, uh, you know, the term kind of got, you know, popular in the, in the mid to late eighties, uh, from these, uh, more experimental artists who were, you know, trading tapes, uh, between various, uh, radio shows. So, uh, you know, especially like, uh, in the, uh, mid to late eighties, there was at least one radio person in every town who was into this and they would play it. They usually in the middle of the night, but they would play this material, these tapes, and, you know, a, a scene slowly developed that was separate from just industrial music, but, you know, this other, well, at the time they called industrial noise. Right. When did you actually start working musically with Masami? Yeah, well, so, let's see. Um, probably the first thing we did might have been the Mersbaugh and Haters cassette on band productions. Maybe that was the first thing. I met Masami in Holland in 89. So yeah, the, the tape would have had to have come out first. So in 89, I, I met him and um, we were both invited by a group in Holland called the V2 Organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So at the time they were based in the city of Den Bosch, uh, which was in central Holland. And um, at the time they were... Um, more interested in promoting kind of alternative and underground culture that uh, they've since moved to Rotterdam and our very official culture now, but that's besides the point is a whole different group of people back in the eighties. I mean, they, they paid my way over to Europe more than once. And uh, I was in Europe for a festival they were doing. They had organized for themselves. I think it was, unstable media or some variation on that anyway. So they brought Miss Sammy over as well. And so, um, we played a couple of the same nights, not together, but on the same bill. And then, uh, we both did kind of mini tours of Western Europe and not always playing the same city, but, um, we were kind of traveling with the Dutch group, uh, THU 20, uh, so that was, that was quite a, that was a rough, he was quiet. He would just, he just uh, like, we were in a van and he would just lay in the back and the Dutch kids and I would be gossiping about, uh, you know, a number of manner of naughty things. And uh, <laughs> well, you and Masami had been in contact for, for like seven years at the point that you met. That yeah, trading, yeah. Trading yeah. mail like art and trading and, and he had organized a lot of compilations that I participated in and vice versa. And, um, how did that first meeting go? Yeah. The first meeting was really interesting because I had just taken a shower and I was starting to make, uh, a, a meal. And then I hear this knock on the door. I'm downstairs the, uh, next to the, the gallery was organized in such a way that the, the performance space was off to one side. Then there was the bookstore record shop. And then behind was the only shower in the whole building. So I was staying upstairs and he would be too. But anyway, so he had just arrived. I had been there for about a week and he had arrived and now he knew that I was downstairs. So he knocked on the door and I let him in and there he was. And it was like finding a long lost brother. It was, I mean, I knew instantly who he was, even though I hadn't really seen any good picture of him, but I knew who he was. 
And um, he, he said, am I disturbing you? I said, oh, no, no, of course not. Come in. And we just sat down and talked most of the rest of the evening. Uh, it was, um, and his English wasn't perfect, so there was a lot of repetition, a lot of looping back, falling back. And um, what did we talk about? Yeah, we talked about what had happened to us in the last 10 years, you know, as far as how the scene was evolving and in fact, we both found ourselves in this weird place in, in Holland, and um, we talked about projects, possible projects that we might do together, and what it all meant to us. I think, at the time, I, I think that's what we were both interested in: is what this thing that we were part of, what did it actually mean to us? Did you remember what it did mean to you at the time, and do you remember what it meant to him at the time? Um. I think the jury was out that we were trying to figure out what it meant to us. Um, he might've already known what it meant to him and he just couldn't express it. But um, I, I think because noise hadn't been so well defined because it was a big gray area and that anything was possible, it didn't have to be loud. It didn't have to have distortion. Uh, I had more to do with your attitude to uh, whatever and um and i think we uh, we were we were guessing we were trying to predict what it may all come to mean so how long were you two together in holland for yeah yeah a few weeks a few weeks of just well, well a few weeks in holland and then we hopped on the in the van with THU 20 and drove down to bordeaux in the south of france for the big uh what probably was the last or second to last dma square festival and um, uh, he, I headlined one night, he headlined the next, I think, or maybe it was the same night. And that was the first time he and I, well, actually, I think it was the only time that he and I performed together as a collaboration. Which, listeners, you can view that as I did a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's on, uh, oh, where did I, archive.org? Yeah, I watched the, yeah, there is a, the video is available online of, of that site. I've seen Bordeaux. it, on, I think, on YouTube. You have a red mask on, red hood on? Is that uh, the performance? That's the light. Oh, it's uh, the light? Okay. Yeah, the light was a black hood, but the light m makes it look reddish. Yeah, it looks very red. Yeah, I was I was rubbing this um It's By the shovel. way, it's it's an incredible set. It's and excellent. yes, you are literally, you are rubbing something the entire uh, a, a time. Is yeah, that what the, it is? Yeah, that's it. I'm, because I was getting a good clanking noise. And he had Mike the shovel, and I was getting this really good kind of clank. I kind of got into it, and I was just, this was it. This is what I was doing. And he processed the signal and played from that. And um, instead of me producing a completely independent sound, it was I was his sound source. And I think that's partly why it was such a successful performance, because it was noise made in tandem. You know, we were both involved in the creation of the same, of that sound source. And the audience got into it in a big way. And it felt great. It really, it, doing it and after, it just felt great. We're both really happy. Uh, I, I said, this is the future. Okay, let's go from here. <laughs> We've never performed together since. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's true? That is true. Now, we played on the same bill because we hung out in California for a month. Uh, the following year, in 1990, he came to uh, California. Uh, a friend of mine from Survival Research 
and I had to drive down to L.A. because he flew to L.A. because there was a show scheduled, but it got canceled as every show at that time, every show booked in L.A. would always get canceled. <laughs> it was like a cliche. We, but anyway, we had to drive down to L.A., pick him up, drive him back to San Francisco, where he stayed with me, uh, he and his wife, Reiko. Um, and let's see, we performed together on the same bill in, in Santa Cruz. And then we played two nights at this gallery in the Lower Haight in San Francisco. It was the only time before or since I ever saw scalpers at a noise show. Wow. Because it was a <laughs> tiny space, which is why we played two nights. Because it was a really right. small space. And uh, you couldn't get that many people in. And there was, even by then, 1990, uh, October of 1990, it was... You know, there was a lot of interest in what he was doing. And uh, so we, we, we booked the space for two nights and it sold out like overnight because we were selling tickets out of this one record shop in the Lower Haight. And someone had bought enough tickets to scalp them. And I hear he got a pretty good, he was getting a pretty good price for them. <laughs> That's insane. You know, uh, talking about making the sound source and having Masami process, it was something that Eldon also talked about when we had him on the show mm -hmm. because he performed uh, sort of in or as a member of Mertzbau. And uh, he said, he said kind of the same thing of like, it worked really well because you're making this thing, but you have someone here taking care of the processing. Yeah. 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 No, it worked e e exceedingly well. And Masami's such a, he's so skilled at, at taking other sounds and putting it through his, his it just, stuff and it, it would, comes out. Yeah. Cause he had a, a, certainly a, 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 a very uh, distinctive style of processing. And uh, I'm always disappointed when I see him collaborating with other people and he's not, that's not the process that's taking place. Did you ever play Japan? I did. Yes. Oh, that's true. He, he and uh, Zbigniew did a collaboration on the night that I uh, performed at Milk in Tokyo. Um, and what would that have been? Um, 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 1999. Mm -hmm. 99 uh autumn of 99 and uh, we didn't hang out that much though uh you know uh he was polite and professional and i was kind of polite and not professional at all <laughs> uh and it was a stressful time for me but um you know no uh, we had fun hanging out and he but i was in japan for a few weeks and that was the only time uh that i saw him uh i actually was staying with zabignia uh in tokyo for most of that time there, uh, spending part of the time with, um, uh, uh, Koji, uh, MSBR fame. Um, and then Mayuko up, she had just moved out of Tokyo and she was staying in, uh, she had bought a house on the top of this hill and we stayed with her for a little bit. So as, as someone who has collaborated with Masami numerous times now, both in person and, and via mail, what is it you hear in this or that you hear in those collaborations or work from sort of the eighties that, that you like, or like, what is it that drew you to this record? Um, well, it's because his sound hadn't been defined yet. He hadn't found his niche. Um, uh, he was still experimenting, trying different things to see what would work and what wouldn't work. Um, and when he was, uh, open-minded, when he, hadn't yet come to any conclusion as to what his sound was. Uh, he was a lot of fun because anything could happen. And uh, there was a real sense of ex 
exploration. And this this record feels like that. I mean, this record feels like anything could happen at any time. Yeah, I would say that the Lavit Soviet Army Officers House Hall doesn't sound like a piece on really any other. And it's recording. why I like it. I mean, you know, we, eventually we we all found our sound and we became very dedicated to developing whatever our sound happened to be. Um, I just uh, felt that Miss Sammy was just a little more adventurous before he had found his sound. And he's not the, the only one I can say that about. There's a lot of people I could say the exact same there's there, a lot of people should never have found their sound <laughs> uh, because they just stopped trying. And I think when you don't know what your sound is or when you decide you need to change your sound, that's when you become more exciting. That's when you become more interesting, at least to my ear. When did you start corresponding or working uh, with Ron with triple uh, R? Oh, that's a really good question. When would that have happened? That had to be, oh, well, that would be around 81, 82, somewhere in there. Maybe 80, oh, 83. Okay, I'm going to say 83. Um, when I uh, released, uh, when I originally released my own records, I'd always put a mailing address. And somehow he had discovered a, a record and saw my address and sent me a tape. So. Uh, at the time, I was doing radio in Seattle and Vancouver, and so uh, I would play the tapes he uh, sent me and would report back, and uh, one thing led to another. Uh, we, okay, so I was with We Never Sleep. This, uh, so I had never met Ron face-to-face. Mm -hmm. From 83 to 91, we only corresponded uh, via the post. And... Um, so in 91, I'm uh, doing a, a world tour with the kids from uh, We Never Sleep. And we make it to Ron's town, to Triple R Records. And we decide to play a little joke on Ron. And so uh, Paul Dickerson was going to be me. I was going to be Paul. And we were going to see how long it would take for Ron to figure out. Now... Okay, maybe it sounds kind of dumb now, but back in 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 1991, it just sounded like an hysterical idea. I, I love it. I'm loving it. <laughs> so Ron figured it out pretty quickly. He knew <laughs> that we were trying to play some kind of joke. He couldn't figure out what it was, but he knew that none of us were on the up and up. So. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I met Ron in 91. I got along with him really well. Uh, then he asked me to... Uh, some years later, because I'd gone off to Europe for a while, and when I came back, he asked me to do a mini tour of New England with him. Which is documented on the Huck Finn VHS, correct? Uh, it should be. It should be. That was my, that was my introduction yeah, yeah. Uh, to a lot of, that was my introduction to skin crime. Right, uh, right. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Correct. No, absolutely. Yes, that was actually that, that tour. Yeah, so that's and, incredible. And um, so we got along because... You know, Ron's not the most social guy. He's not like into drinking a beer with the boys at the local bar. He's more interested in making sure he gets home in time for Letterman oh, when Letterman was still on. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, is like he had a secret love affair of the uh, TV Guide channel because he figured 
why watch any other channel? Because it's all on the TV Guide channel. And I really appreciated that purity. You know, I'm a purist. I'm going, yes, you're absolutely... Because I had a love affair with the Weather Channel at the time. And so I would watch the Weather Channel like 24-7 for days on end. It drove my roommates in Denver absolutely bonkers because they thought it was so boring. But I'm going, it's constant drama. What, are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's snowing in, you know, Kentucky. When does that ever happen? How is that not exciting? So, and then when the different weather, uh, the weather men would get together because they would exchange, you know, shifts. And whenever they, one would come to relieve or, you know, um, relieve the other, they'd always sit and talk about the weather for a few minutes. I always found that fascinating. Anyway, I digress now. But when I first visited Ron, he was into the TV Guy channel and I could totally zone in with that with him. And wow. so we'd spend most evenings after a show, or even hours leading up to the show, we'd just hang out in his um, in his apartment and um, just watch the TV Guy channel. And um, so we got along really well, actually. We we did. We um, we were on the same wavelength for a lot of things. Um, he was critical of certain aesthetics that were very prominent in noise at the time, and I shared his criticism. Um, So we actually saw eye to eye on a lot of issues, aesthetically and intellectually, even though we took it in very different directions. But um, he was an amazing showman. I can understand why he retired from doing live shows. He really would throw himself into his character. And uh yeah it was just a level of energy there's no way i could sustain that myself even if i tried even for a little bit but he did it for years and years i think any of us that saw him back then or you know back then i didn't see him (laughs) way back when but even in the 2000s i got to see him a bunch and yeah he he would it was a show you were were witnessing a show oh you really were yeah yeah always some of the best live noise i've ever seen agreed oh absolutely no question about it you're talking about 1986. 1986 is also the, is that the year of the infamous Denver show where you guys destroyed a club? No, oh, there was a lot of shows exactly like that. Oh, really? But, but, oh, yeah. It was called, officially, it's a trapeze number. That's the title of the show, of the, of the performance piece. And yes, we would basically go on stage and trash the place. Now... Oh, uh, yeah. That's most, most of the shows from 86 through... 93 i mean that's you're talking that's like more than half the performances and uh actually what happened i stopped doing those types of shows because i I was back in san francisco this is probably 93 94 and i had been banned from damn near every alternative space for making such a mess because i would never clean up after myself And even when I did, it didn't seem to do any good. The, the, the gallery or the space, the artist space, whatever it was, would be really pissed at me. Because for some reason, after all these years, they thought I would treat them differently than I treated everybody else. So what happened is that I, I stopped doing this piece. Uh, it was a celebration of entropy. It was always promoted as a celebration of entropy. And why sing or scream about destroying stuff when you can just destroy stuff? (laughs) Like, forget about language. Just get to the meat of the action, you know? 
And uh, the extremely successful performances, no one ever got, well, very few people ever got hurt. Uh, no real property damage because people figured out, oh, you know, we're just destroying these props. We're not doing real damage to the actual venue. And that inst the audience instantly knew this. They understood this. You know, it was a, I used to also call it non-confrontational violence because yeah, we were violent, but never towards anybody. It was always towards stuff in the, the material world. Anyway, I digress. So I stopped doing the piece because I was in San Francisco. I got banned from every alternative venue, but the big time music industry clubs, they kept calling me up. They'd find my number. They'd call me up. Oh, can you come to such and such a venue and we'll pay you X number of dollars to just destroy the venue? We're going to do a renovation. We're doing a remodel. So you could save us money by just trashing the place. Okay, once, sure, fine, funny, ha-ha, little story. No, this kept happening wow. time and time again. I had no alternative space, but I had these big music venues that wanted me to out, try to outdo myself for the sake of the, their, you know, their budget. I didn't want to work for the man, so I just said, no, I'm not doing this piece again. And that's really why I stopped doing those particular types of shows. I have a friend who saw you in Detroit at Zoots in 1997. There's a, oh, yes. there's a video of this. He saw what was going on on stage, and he walks by in front of the camera and grabs a chair and throws it on stage because he thought it was you would have wanted that. <laughs> I, I, I don't discourage people who want to participate in the performance even now. I mean, I know that promoters will, but I won't. I, uh, anyone who wants to throw stuff at me is welcome to do so. <laughs> okay, so this goes back to my punk days because in the early days of punk, and I'm talking about 76, 77, 78, it was rude not to spit on the guitarist. You know, if you're throwing a bottle of beer, there better be something in that bottle. <laughs> you know, um, it was part of the energy, part of the ex the communal experience. At least that's how I saw it. Not everyone did. I understand that now, but I wanted to carry that with me uh, in my at least my early uh, performance days. I I wanted the audience to throw stuff at us because I wanted that to be the performance. You know, a lot of the stuff we did on stage was a decoy. What we really wanted was the audience to take over the performance and, and dominate the spa uh, space. Uh, in, in 86, you know, I would have inside agitators. But, uh, the, you know, the word got around. That inside agitators only lasted like a few months, really. You know, by like 87, 88, you didn't have to tell anyone what to do. Uh, people would come specifically like to throw trash. And that was great when I wasn't going to be paid to do it by the man. So when you, you spent how much time in Europe on this, uh, this initial Holland trip? Oh, oh well, yeah, no, Masami? Holland was a 89. I was just there for maybe three months. Then okay. I, I went back stateside for about a year, then uh, back to Europe for a year, year and a half, then back stateside. So I'd be good. Uh, hopping back and forth, depending when my visas would be running out. Uh, <laughs> porn was a huge thing uh, for, in my mind at least, looking back, especially in the 80s and into the 90s for noise. Where does that come from? Well, that came from back in the day. 
people wanted noise to be extreme. It was supposed to be an extreme experience, uh, be it physical or by audio, what have you. Uh, noise was supposed to be a platform for extreme ideas. And pornography was just seen as a way to illustrate the emotional kind of harshness or the emotional state of this is something that's not ordinary. This is something out of the ordinary. You're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the noise scene. And so it was a way, I guess, to shock those who weren't part of the scene. It was a way of establishing boundaries. This is where the scene exists. This is not where the scene exists, you know, kind of a thing. Um, kind of like it's partly an inside joke, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, you're into that magazine too, you know. It, it wasn't just porn. It had to be obscure porn. And it had to be you know, kind of experimental on, on some level. Participated in the production of bondage movies back in Japan. He did the soundtrack for a series of videos. He knew these people. He knew the producers and the directors. He knew the actors, the actresses uh, in many of these productions. These were not strangers to him. These were like the people he hung out with. And uh, more than anyone else, uh, people, when they thought of porn, they thought of Merspaugh. More than anyone else. I mean, you know, uh, Black Leather Jesus, you know, he has his, you know, his gay porn. But even, he doesn't even do that as much as he used to. But, you know, other people, you know, I, I, yeah, sometimes would dabble in it when I thought it was funny or, you know, there was some kind of irony involved in it. But Miss Sammy, he just dove, he, he just swam in it. He just, that was his, that was his imagery. That was his uh, motif. And... That's how he sold himself for the first 10 so years of, of his career. I have a, a couple of good quotes, actually, from an interview with him that, uh, that I think get at the same. This same uh... When you used it, though, a lot of times it'd be pictures you took. Yes. Correct? I mean, I only think of, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, uh, okay, so being the snotty, uptight person that I can be sometimes, I thought it was too lazy to recycle uh, already existing porn. I thought if I'm using porn, then I should make it myself. And I just found it more sincere. And although I, I appreciate what Miss Sammy did with the format, I, I, and I do, and I am a fan of his early work, but, you know, especially in, in, in America, a lot of American projects that were using porn at the time, and this is like, late 80s, early 90s. It was just stuff that you remember seeing elsewhere. It wasn't unique to the release or the performance. It was, oh yeah, okay, you know, you, oh yeah, you know, my neighbor has this, showed it to me like last week. And, you know, it's, I rented it from the video rental place down the street. It was less shocking. It was more boring because there was stuff you were already familiar with. In a way, Miss Sammy, because he lived in Japan, he kind of had it easy because most of us at the time would have never have seen Japanese porn of any kind. So there was a uniqueness to it that at the time we, you know, we were unaware, unfamiliar with. But anyway, uh, I, yeah, I would always shoot my own videos and do my own photography and girlfriends at the time or roommates or 
the neighbor across the street always seemed happy to undress in front of me. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just a story of my life. That's not, that's not bad. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, was Masami at all part of how you uh, end up doing a record on release relapse? Was that, was there any, I mean, he did it. He obviously did it first, but then, yeah. you know, you were, you weren't too far after. No. Um, I, I, the label just happened to really be into both of our projects. And, um, in fact, uh, the label contacted me saying, we just put out Merspo. Now we want to put out the haters. Oh, that's awesome. And sent me a bunch of uh, CDs and, and t-shirts and what have you. And, uh, uh, yeah, relapse and and uh, and I we had a lot of projects down the the pipeline, but unfortunately, those involved in getting that label into noise all got fired, and because it was losing them too much money, <laughs> and they wanted to stay focused on their you know grindcore, heavy metal, death metal uh, repertoire. But there was there was a time when it was especially, and we've discussed this so many times, but. I mean, my first noise order was from Relapse. I ordered, I ordered the Haters Mersbaugh Split. I ordered a Mac, the Macro Government Alpha Split CD, and a Sudden Infant Tape, and a couple other things. So in my mind, it was so associated with noise. But that was pretty much the end of them. Yes, being involved with noise. It was. There was an internal struggle within that organization, uh, and this included the two founders. One was really into noise and saw that as the future and wanted to steer the company towards that. The other founder said, no, this is just losing us money. Um, we can sell 10 times more of a single title if we just stayed with what we started with originally, which was death metal, grindcore, what have you. And um, one of the founders got fired from his own company and they cleared the catalog of anything noise related. They canceled all the, and they had many, many interesting releases planned that they just pulled the plug on. One of the classes, of course, Emil Bolio has a relapse record that was supposed to be on relapse. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, they were going to release my death defying sickness. And, uh, I'm really sorry they didn't because <sighs> I thought it was a stronger album than death on decay. I mean, drunk on decay. But uh, nevertheless, I had to uh, release that myself. I wonder what the impact of all the other noise, because we talk about on the podcast a lot, the impact that those relapse CDs had on so many people in the distribution. And if that stuff kept going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't until relapse started distributing my stuff that I really started seeing my releases in every record shop that I would stroll into. And that never happened before, you know. I mean, I had a little bit of distribution with Vinyl Communication, but they really specialized in the indie, indie store, whereas Relapse and Release had like, I mean, they were everywhere. They literally, literally were omnipresent as I'm, far as... I'm so. pretty sure I got Drunk on the K at a Borders. I'm, I'm almost positive. Yeah, I'm yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd be lovely. I'd, li- I'd like to hear that. So awesome. But Vinyl um, Communication is another, you know big impact label, especially on American audiences. Especially American. I mean, Mind the Gap, one of the all-time classic noise records. Oh, oh, thank you. I'm I'm pleased when... I I hear uh, a lot. um, 
people will come to me and say that uh, Mind the Gap was their first noise, really. So the first time they heard the haters anyway. And that pleases me because I was always really happy with that release. And um, also um, uh, Cultivating Calamity, which was one of my original 10-inch releases, um, uh, speaking about, like, uh, speaking of my neighbors undressing in front of me, making great uh, photo ops. Um, um, that that's one. That's some of the. That's one of the best covers. Oh, sure. thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was. Uh, they were worried because the um, the printer, the the manufacturer was very weary of printing any kind of nudity, anything that might be considered pornography. But I showed them the picture that I wanted to use, and everyone was quite relieved and said, "Oh yeah, that's okay. That, that just looks like Vogue. That's all right." <laughs> um, I think uh, I think Mind the Gap was my first foray into the haters, but I was also obsessed with Wind Licked Dirt, which uh, oh yes, record collector in Livonia, Devin Brainerd had a uh, acquired a copy of that on CD. So I have a oh CD the CD copy version. Yeah. Oh my, that very few. There are very few of oh, that. Yeah. Well, that's a rare item. <laughs> That really is. Also on Vinyl Communication, uh, they did mer- a, a couple Mersball releases. And um, uh, Bob wanted to do a tribute to Mersball. And he said, do you think that's possible? Do you think we could get enough people interested to do a Mersball theme compilation? I said, oh, yeah, it's no trouble. Let me ask around. So I ended up being more or less the curator of that. There's like 19 right. tracks on that thing, yeah, so there yeah. are definitely enough people to... Oh, the, yeah, and there was, uh, there was a few that got turned away because they, they were late getting their tracks to us. They, oh, it could have been a double CD quite easily. Wow. But it ended up being called uh, America Salutes Merspell yeah. because uh, originally it was going to be more international, but Mike Dandu of Condom was the only person from outside the country who replied in time to get on the release, so... Anyway, and Bob picked the cover, which I thought was quite funny and fitting. How long did it take to put the comp together? Oh, yeah, just a few months, three, four months. I feel like comps take like 10 years to put together. <laughs> Some of them do. Some of them do, absolutely. They either, they either come out immediately or they, they can take forever. What inspired you and Masami to do a tribute to MB in 97? I mean, you had said earlier that MB is one of the things that kind of brought you guys together back in the early eighties that, you know, the connection, uh, you know, between that. So what, by what in 1997 inspired a split release dedicated to MB? Well, it was the labels idea, uh, old Europa cafe. Um, MB had become kind of an obscure character and the label wanted to reintroduce him back into the scene and they picked Marisbal, uh, Masami, and myself to do the tribute because, I'm not bragging here, I'm just stating <laughs> a historical fact, but not so much in America, I would say not at all, but in Europe, in mainland Europe, uh, people who followed the scene from the early days uh, to then at least, um, MB... Masami and myself were seen as kind of the three horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, we were like <laughs> the three founding fathers of the European noise scene, or what became the European noise scene. And um, and yes, there's groups like White House, but that was more of an English thing. It didn't affect mainland Europe uh, the same way that uh, MB, Masami, and I guess myself 
I guess we had a bigger impact for a lot of people from that generation. And so uh, it had been a while since uh, MB had disappeared. He hadn't come back onto the scene yet. So he was kind of an obscure historical figure that only a few people were really into. I think the label thought that if Masami and I did a tribute album, that that would spark a new uh, interest in uh, MB's uh, material. Well, it absolutely did. Like I said, at the time, I didn't know who you were referring to. It. I mean, I, I researched and, 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 and figured it out, you know, relatively quickly. So the label's idea did work. I, yeah. I certainly sought out MB because of that. Oh, Split well, that's 12. good. Yeah, I, I think the early work of MB is just incredible. Uh, he came out of the industrial scene. Uh, he was a music critic, wrote for various papers and magazines, and he criticized uh, the industrial music artists for not being very industrial, for being just lame pop stars. And they would write back or reply back saying, well, if you think you can do better, why don't you? And he said, okay, I will. And he did, and the rest is history. <laughs> now, after a while, you know, he disappeared from the scene. He had kind of a religious experience and decided that it wasn't for him. He just dropped out of public life. Well, not that the only scene was all that public, but you know what I mean. He kind of dropped out of his public persona and just attended to uh, work and family. But since the release of that tribute, and, and I think since the CD re-release of that material, he's come back onto the scene. For the longest time, I didn't believe it was really him. I, I was always skeptical, too. I, I told people that, no, this can't be the guy, because he seems so different from the person I met back in 82 in Merlin. But the individual known as MB has convinced me otherwise he has convinced me that he really is the person I met in Merlin in 82 because he knew things that only the real MB would have known. <laughs> like, 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 a, like a murder investigation. <laughs> he also sent me a handwriting a sample. Because, oh, so you really did. You oh, dug no. in. Oh, yeah, I did. That, that, no, what, you, uh, some stranger from out of nowhere claims to be MB. Oh, I want proof. <laughs> and I have a lot of MB's uh, early correspondence. And so I compared the sample he sent me with, copies of the letters that I still have in, in my archives. And there was no doubt it's the same guy because his handwriting is really super uh, unique. Wow. And uh, it was definitely him. And he knew things that only the real MB would know. And so it was kind of odd. He was, again, kind of a stranger to me um, because I originally wanted to collaborate with him. And he said, no, my, my music's too personal. I can't collaborate. Now he collaborates with damn near anyone yes. like suggested. It's also, uh, his work now is way more ambient, although I knew he was headed in that direction back in the eighties anyway. Um, but it's the early work. It's the work that he did, uh, before he disappeared, especially the first three or four albums and early tapes where, I mean, I never knew of anyone who could imitate the sound of machinery so accurately using nothing but cheap keyboards. Uh, he, he could certainly feel like that, yeah. that sense of oh, industrialism. So and um, you know, he's a fascinating little fellow, actually. 
And uh, yeah, we only spent a couple of days together in Milan, but we had corresponded for quite a while. So, and he was the first person you corresponded, or at least, at least, at least in in what became the noise. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, he was he definitely the first. I mean, I was kind of in touch with Culture Side, which maybe some of you out there will be familiar with, uh, but uh, it wasn't that didn't get personal like it did with MB and Miss Sammy for a good chunk of that decade. You were talking about how you kind of came from punk and, you know, kind of in a lot of ways, I kind of see maybe European, some of the European acts coming from more industrial. Oh, absolutely. Where yeah. did, where did you see Masami coming oh, from? He came out of jazz. There's no, uh, you have to dig a little bit, but it, it becomes increasingly obvious that his interest was more in, in jazz. Uh, a lot of his early references when he does make reference are from jazz. I mean, albeit obscure jazz personalities, but uh, when he talked about being the new Sun Ra, that, that wasn't by accident. He It was because of not just the huge number of releases that Sun Ra did, but also because of the influence that Sun Ra had on jazz. Hopefully you get a count a lot of good garbage cans on your way home, GX. But thank you. Uh huh. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming in for this. This was incredible. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful to talk to you about all this. Yeah. You've been listening to MERScast. I'm Gray Holger. I was here with Mike Connolly and GX Jupiter Larson. MERScast is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our awesome Patreon subscribers. Thanks to new subscribers, Josh Eppert and Yannick. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash MERScast, find us on Instagram at MERScast, or on the web at MERScast.com. Thank you for listening to us and to Mertzbau.